rescue attempt? Might be. Yes. Welcome to Film Fight Club. It is indeed Wednesday. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen. Is it? It, it? it is. It is Wednesday. Oh, okay. I, I, I always thought it was Wednesday, unless things have changed dramatically in the last week. We still go by the lunar. It's Groundhog Day. Hello, uh, Bill Murray. Bill Murray stories. Every day I'm recording an episode of Film Fight Club. You know, Michael Shannon was in that movie. Michael Shannon was the young kid at the end who came in like, you saved my life, Bill Murray, you've changed everything. And helped really? The young girl. Yeah. Wow. Actually, Michael Shannon has had a great career. He was in Vanilla Sky earlier, which was not his best work, but whatever. And he was in um, Bad Boys 2, which means he has to be in Bad Boys 3, which is coming out, what, next year? But why does he have to be in Bad Boys 3? <laughs> because he, he was, was also in Bad, Bad Boys, Boys 2. 2. Yeah, he was the The bigger dealer. question is, why does a Bad Boy 3 need to exist? Because otherwise you wouldn't have Bad Boys 4, which is also coming out. What? Yeah, there's, I think they're doing back-to-back sequels. It's so awesome. I've been listening to the soundtrack lately. So Seriously. Awesome. The Nelly soundtrack for Bad Boys 2 is still out of this world. Look, all the actors who are out of jobs, just stay out of your job because you don't deserve to have one because you, time has clearly passed. Wow. Wow, that's awful. Will Smith is great. And I want Martin Lawrence to be credited first, like in the first Bad Boys. Remember Martin Lawrence is credited above Will Smith? That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. That's probably fair. He's M- a better actor. Was Martin more popular than The Fresh Prince? At the time, because remember, you had Blue Streak, you had yeah. like a lot of big Martin Lawrence films. I'm trying to remember more of them, but they were, they were, they were big <laughs> they were at there. the time. They were popular. And we should introduce the rest of the panel, because otherwise we wouldn't be filmed Vite Club. We have Chris Evans. Hey. Here. And we have Varun Nehru. Yep. Cheerio. Who obviously very excited, to, you know, as I am, to see Bad Boys 3 come out when it does. Michael Bay. Because I'm such a bad boy. It's not right? Michael Bay. It's directed by some some like hotshot European people whose names I can't remember. But then, how are you going to have a low angle, two hundred and seventy degree shot as they stand up? And maybe we won't. That's that's sacrilege. Times are changing. Not you know, you know what's going to happen. John Woo should direct a Bad Boys movie. It, it was w- called Face Off. Yeah, <laughs> John John Woo would be would be fantastic. This week on Film Fight Club. This week on Film Fight Club. We are not talking about John Woo. We are talking about the Cine Latino Film Festival, just screening out Pal Cinemas and Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which we have all seen, which will be screening on Netflix next month, just in time for Christmas. It'll, there'll also be some screenings coming up later this weekend, I believe. Yes, there's one screening at the Verona Cinema on the 24th and one at Norton Street on the 25th before it lands on Netflix on December 14. We'll also be discussing the new Suspiria remake, which is in cinemas now. A lot of contention on that one. And later in the program on the podcast, we'll be talking about the Japanese Film Festival, which is in full swing at Event Cinema's George Street. If you, I'm heading there in a few days to catch double and pretty keen. Oh, which double are you doing? I want, I want to do um, one we're going to talk about, One Cut of the Dead, because I want to see it with a big audience, and I want to see Killing, which we're also going to be talking about later in the program. Yep, we'll also be talking about the new film from Masaki Uasa, the great anime director, Night is Short, Walk on Goal. Yes. yes! But first, we are talking all things Roma. It is one of the most anticipated 
films of the year. Certainly, it's Oscar season, and this is the one that is going to get and is already getting a lot of buns. It is directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who is also the cinematographer for the film, which is not surprising given how masterfully it is done. It is set in Mexico in the 1970s amidst a massive upheaval, and is it about it is about a middle class family and a key figure in their life. Uh, Cleo, played by Yulitsa Aparicio, who is typically plays a figure that goes less acknowledged than they should, but certainly gets a lot of breath in this beautifully, and I can't understand this enough, beautifully shot film. I think what really makes the film work is building the film around Cleo, who is the maid to this middle-class family. So all of the um, bourgeois kind of struggles they go through are really grounded by this more humble perspective. And she really is a humble character, but in one in whom Quaron finds a lot of quiet strength without ever really sentimentalizing her, which I think is the, the great strength of the approach in this film. It's such a humane film, and the slow kind of burn style that Quaron's been working towards, I guess, since Itumama Tambien. Which is also screening on the final night of the Cine Latino Film Festival on November 28th. Worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Gail um, Garcia Bernal was so hot in that movie. Right. <laughs> Just as an aside. Anyway, but, um, back to the topic. Yeah, it, the, the immersive long-take approach really pays off in this film. It takes its time. When it opens up, um, it, it opens with sort of a lot of very quiet domestic scenes with not much happening so that you can get used to this style of long, sweeping, black-and-white, wide-angle shots. Um, but gradually, through this approach... It builds empathy. Um, the accumulation of details in Quaron's direction and in the, the mise-en-scene is so precise. This film feels so lived in. It's, I, well, I talked about it last week, but I'm going to talk about it again because, well, why not? Uh, it's, it's such a beautiful film, and what Chris talked about, and I'm going to agree with Chris again, seem to be doing quite that lot recently. Why, Film why Agreements that? Club. Yeah. No, especially with <laughs> we'll Chris. We'll snap out of it. Actually, yeah, I feel like I'm disagreeing more with Glenn more and more. I feel like, I don't know why that's happening. But we'll wait for Glenn's shocking take on Roma. I know. <laughs> no, but uh, actually, uh, what, I, what I did love about what Chris mentioned, it's a very humane film, and that's a interesting way to put it because that's a very, probably the most acute description that you can talk about the film in those terms. And one of the things that I love about the film is how despite people from different backgrounds, different sociocultural identities, what experiences do actually bind them together? For example, Cleo being a maid and, you know, the mistress of the house and them being women. And by virtue of being women, they're treated somewhat similar ways by men in their lives. And yeah. that binds them together. So despite their actual class differences and their sociopolitical differences and their status differences, they still find that common ground by being women. It's a really interesting way to actually talk about differences and commonality in that sense. That's a good point, because even though class is a major theme in this film, um, the movie is never really condescending to upper class or the lower class. It just finds the humanity in people and the way that they, they go through emotional turmoil no matter where they're coming from. But it takes time to um, empathize with the more upper class figure, which is That's fine. True. We get Because we get to learn more about them as we get to learn more about the main character in this film. And um, on this point, I just want to focus on the first incredible six minutes of this film because while we get introduced to the main character, we don't actually see her properly. We don't get a visual of a face that we can recognize and identify with for quite some time, which means as we still see her move about, we are forced to reckon with her environment. We yeah. learn more about the environment she's in, which is so crucial to the film before we learn about her. She's it's a f- masterfully done. She's a figure in this space, which is 
perfect for the idea of you know who this character is. She's the maid. She's meant to just sort of be, be in there the background. In, yeah, be there in the background. Do do the things she's meant to do. Keep this environment looking and and feeling great, and that's it. But she changes from part of the mise en scène to actually the main focus uh, very gradually of the first act of the film, early in the first act, which of the film. I think is mirroring the relationship she has with this family, where over time real bonds are formed. I think it's interesting to talk about this film a week after we were talking about Shoplifters, because this is another film about being part of a family. When you're not, you know, literally exactly. tied you by know, blood. Yeah. 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 Different kinds of family structures. Because yet, at the end of the film, she's 100% a part of the family. And yet, Glenn, you had very contrasting reactions to shoplifters in Roma, I guess. Well, you liked Roma, right? I'm, I'm hoping you like Roma. I otherwise, did. we have to call off our friendship. Oh, I did. Like, I, I definitely don't want to do that. So I will state unequivocally that I did enjoy Roma. I enjoyed Roma more than shoplifters. I think the reason is that the with shoplifters, the compelling aspects of the narrative occurred within the third act. Here, it immediately happens within the first act of the film. More importantly, I think we're able to empathize with more of the figures within Roma at an earlier stage. It's about really, I'd say mainly one figure, but I'd say broadly two, where shoplifters, I think, spread itself a little thin by trying to paint very detailed pictures of several characters, whereas I was appreciated being able to simply focus on one character in this film more so. I disagree on shoplifters there, but um, I'm surprised to hear you say that most of the action, um, you know, the, the action's happening straight away in Roma, because I found it, it actually was a bit of a slow burn I, I started to really care about the characters and get involved, maybe not till 15, 20 minutes in. Well, I start, I think when I say thing, in terms of action, interaction started to happen, the moment when uh, we get a little more idea of the world she's enveloped in is a scene we were discussing about off air where she has a interaction with a young man. And oh, that was very- incredible. That was the moment where I thought that I'm watching solid gold. And then any every scene, there weren't many scenes with this individual, but every scene with him, especially in one long shot, was really one striking. pan, just beautifully staged. Absolutely. Um, he represents, I think, so much turmoil personally and politically, but he is allowed to be just this little side character that drops in and out of the narrative. This is such a, yeah. a beautifully streamlined film. I mean, we're about to talk about Suspiria, and <laughs> which is watching, not as good. Which yeah, is watching, not at all. watching that after Roma just makes you appreciate how beautifully Quaron has uh, streamlined a lot of complex elements, and also brought together the political and the personal in a yeah, subtle, exactly. non-heavy-handed way, where yeah. they, they you're able to draw your own parallels and conclusions without Quaron hammering you over the head with political commentary. Exactly. Like last week, I mentioned that, and I completely agree. And that's one of my. Because there's so many political films trying to be political uh, at this current time, Ex- because just everything is everyone has to wants to be taking a huge stand right now, which is and, understandable. And, and but not, is it the you know, best approach for art? Spike Lee, aka Black Clansman, but I am in some sense. But but you know, it, it it just feels like you can make a political film, but you don't have to make a statement. And I think a lot of films are not trying to be films; they're trying to be statements at this point in time. But even without that, what I really did like in Roma were the quieter moments which seemingly do not add anything to the narrative until you realize quite a lot into the movie yeah. that they actually were adding something. This, this film is really all about the quiet moments. It's, Especially, it's a really for example, you know, something as banal as dog poo. Yeah, become yeah. so important. Or airplanes <laughs> flying overhead, hugely yeah. significant. Or the opening shot, which we haven't mentioned, which is one of the best establishing shots I've seen in recent memory. It, 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 it in a simple 
in a, in a stationary shot, it builds anticipation like I've very rarely seen. It was stunningly done. There's some beautiful scenes, or there's a beautiful... There's a couple of great scenes in, set in the cinema, and uh, one of them it was a nice little way for Quaron to acknowledge some inspiration for Gravity, I, I thought. Yes. Oh, that was great. <laughs> that was it, yeah. it was the one self-aware moment in the film, and it could have been a very film that was conscious of itself. It was going back to the political elements of it. We have mm-hmm. the three characters who we've discussed representing the upper class, um, a lower class, and the political turmoil. But it isn't hackneyed. You don't look at them That's and think, right. here are three pieces in this game. And actually, they work as dramatic persona in and of themselves. Well, since we were just talking about how quiet uh, and how important the silences are in this film, uh, there's no way, going back to how we introduced this, that this is going to be as big at the Oscars as a lot of people are talking about, I think. Yeah, this film, I, I, I think or people, on Netflix. It's not a Netflix it's, movie. But, but oh, it's, it's a, also so in a way weird for Netflix. beautifully... I guess counterculture to actually be on Netflix. This kind of a movie, and if it ever has a following on Netflix, I would be. It's a you know, it's it, a they want weird little, they kind want of quiet statues. revolution happening by, by putting it on Netflix. I think this is a movie that can only exist because people like you know Netflix are searching for prestige right now. Because yeah, right. for such a quiet film, this is a mega production for such a subtle film. Yeah. The 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 scene where. Um, all the characters run down a street, and we're just oh, taking yes. in these sweeping period detail. This is a big budget production yeah. and for a, a really quiet and um, yeah. This is not season of death. Yeah, a quiet, not, yeah. odd film. Yeah. Th- think of there's a, there's a sequence where you're just in a warehouse and it's regular, and then you see literally hundreds thousands of individuals involved in this huge scale turmoil think of the scene in dr oh, Shivago where they're just in the house and then the giant sweeping breath of people walking down the street towards yeah um, the Shivago's place it's fr- staged in a similar way to the uh, attacks early on in children of men i thought you know we, we, our focus is on a character in the foreground doing something mundane and then in the background here comes this massive sweep of action and this is something we don't talk about. It's it's sound design essentially. You know, the sound design is amazing. Sound design is exceptional because you can actually feel each and every you know frame of the movie and what they're supposed to do. The leaves are rustling, and you can hear the leaves rustling, and yet people can talk over it. The mixing can, of that, yeah, you it, it's fantastic. The, it's very precise, the, actually. There's a scene involving ocean waves at the end. It's the be- I think it's the best scene in the I, film. I, I agree. It's it's very beautiful, but it's just pounding on the soundtrack. Yeah. And the the urban landscapes are really um, intricate soundscapes as well. The, the mixture of photography and sound here is fantastic. What do we all think of the black and white cinematography? I seem to be like rediscovering the good things about shooting in black and white, which I kind of miss in color. Mm-hmm. And the depth of field, especially. Oh, the, the depth of field in this film is incredible. It's just so beautiful because you can have things happening in the background and the foreground and it doesn't distract you. And things can happen in both compositions, and you can still be okay. And you can focus, and your your eyes, you can follow along. This is easily. reminding me. There's one sequence in particular. I don't want to go into spoilers, but Huaron yeah. uses the depth of field really beautifully, um, and in, in a powerful, heavy hitting way, actually, to put you in the mind of a protagonist who is seeing something terrible yes. happening and has no, you know, you're distanced from it. You, you yes. want to look Another over to the, it, but you can feel the distance from it. Another one of the best scenes brilliant, in the film, yes. Brilliant cinematographic it's, it's choices. Harrowing. Or, harrowing, absolutely. Um, it, on the black and white, though, um, I agree with everything that's been said, but there are very few, I think, visual 
things that can transfix you in black and white, which are distinct and wholly far and above better than can be captured in color. That is the use of fire. And there is a a beautiful, beautiful sequence with the use of fire in this film. It's it's just a different look. I mean, Rama has a really distinctive look because of the black and white, I think. I guess the only person who plays with depth of field and color from that perspective is Chalan, I guess, with that sort of Turkish lavish landscapes and doing that in color. But still, it, no match on what's happening yeah, here. Yeah, this is... And I think that's part of my frustration is that... This film looks really clean. Yeah, yeah. And, and capturing the scene in the water, oh my God. We talk about sound design, but how they capture that scene in and of itself. Yeah. Oh man, it's just an incredible feat of cinematography. Um, and and that's what I'm afraid of, that people are actually not going to realize what's hit them because it's on Netflix. It's weird that it's on Netflix because, yeah, it doesn't fit the let's chill out and watch a Netflix movie. No. Um, Especially you run it lead up to Christmas. This is not a relaxing film. Yeah, um, it's a heavy art film. And as we've spoken about, the photography is stunning and the sound design is, is amazing. It really feels like a film that's designed to be seen in a, in a cinema, especially since there's, all, there's barely any close-ups. The whole thing... Situates figures yeah. in these wide landscapes, and what and the camera pans around as we watch them move around the scene. Oh and God. to appreciate that, right, a laptop is r- really not going to do the trick. This is one hundred percent a film that needs the and makes full use of the scale of the cinema screen for its visual impact. Oh my God, I I agree so much with you, Chris. Especially because I think we've been overdosed with Hollywood cinema and those kind of, you know, super cuts back and forth yep. and this super well, sharp editing and close-ups. I, I was having a conversation last week about how I think the visual language of film is changing because people are watching more stuff you know, quickly on the go on a phone and therefore clo- more and more close-ups are dominating the uh, visual approach of film you know, because that's something that you can glean you know, the the main visual details of someone's face reacting to something, you can glean it on a on a phone size screen and not feel like you're missing out on it. I don't I can't I don't know what the visual what the emotional impact of this film would be on, on a phone screen. I just can't imagine it. Bakran's rejecting this. And I'm gonna use one example. There is the sequence we haven't referred to at a lake where they're standing shooting game and it's like watching uh the night watchman or these giant paintings in um, in the New South Wales Art Gallery because there is so much attention oh, to detail. So, such a you, painterly think, scene. You're right. The, you the framing is so classical painting. If it is on a phone or an iPad, I had the pleasure of watching this on a big screen. There's a couple of opportunities to do so in Sydney. Uh, you should Take definitely the opportunity. make use of it. Do it. But, yeah. but that's the thing, you know, um, if people don't watch it and their first experience of this is on a laptop, I don't know what that experience is going to be like. Like, if I were to now see this again on Netflix on a laptop... Like I said, I can't even imagine. I, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it. I'm so, I thought, actually, I'm so blessed and actually very thankful I saw it in the cinema because that's one thing that I didn't realize I would feel like that until my first experience can actually tarnish or make or break a movie's relationship with it. I think this is Quaron's best film. I think people have to seek it out. I think people should seek it out, too. This is... Roma, it is screening at the Cine Latino Film Festival on Saturday at the Verona and Sunday at Norton Street, and it will be on Netflix on December 14. But please do catch it before. The next film we are talking about... Unless is- you've got a 4K projector and a oh, yeah. massive Hello, screen. Oh, yeah. Hello, Will Wong. Yeah, Will Wong. <laughs> You can wait till Netflix. Everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go see it at the movies. So the next one we are talking about is Suspiria, which is the remake of Dario Argento's classic cult film, which has been playing at festivals interminably for decades and decades. It is set in the 1970s in Berlin at the height. And is it ever? Goddamn. Yes. Oh, the Bader Meinhof gang is here and just yeah. oh, ever present. Of course, they are. Nothing signals 1970s Berlin like Berlin Wall. B- David Bowie. Bader Meinhof. And blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, blah. What they're doing, the 
literally checking it off a list or something because that's what you it was it very feels like it was very much like that um they did like they get to get the geography of the place right like they went to Friedrichstrasse and Kreuzberg and they went through there and it was a very good recreation of what, what the, of the image of what it did look like at the time but yes it is you are in 1970s Berlin they make this very very clear it is starring Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton in multiple roles as we'll go on to discuss uh, Mia Goth and Chloe Grace Moretz even though she's in it very sparingly it is about as is the original a dance school and a young woman from the US who comes to the school at in a very which is a very painstaking procedure to you know get through these classes but something strange is going witch, on witch Yes. Um, so this is screening now. It got a big run, uh, or a little bit of pre-screen in the lead up to Halloween. Look, if you want to see it, I would uh, I would go now because this has been an absolute atomic bomb. Um, Talking about a that huge atomic disaster. Blonde, another film set in Cold War Germany. Well, this is better than Atomic <laughs> Blonde, thank God. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wait, uh, oh, God. <laughs> it's much whoa, better. Whoa, atomic whoa, Blonde was like one of those miserable experiences. Not comparable. Like the completely Yeah, completely except not comparable films. except for to say that Suspiria was much better. And Suspiria isn't whoa, even whoa. that good. It's not a good atomic, film. Suspiria is not a good film, but Atomic Blonde was like, was offensively offensively pandering nonsense. <laughs> anyway. I don't think we're but on, on Suspiria, Suspiria. We have to, we have to, before we talk about the remake, we have to talk about the original. And we have to realize, I watched the original for the first time recently, and it is not a classic because of the plot or anything that happens in the film. It is a classic because of the style, and somehow they keep up suspense for well, 98 minutes. I'm glad you mentioned this, because this is a film where, for some, you know, for what, some reason... The 90-minute Suspiria, which, you know, barely sustains that... It, it, it holds up the suspense, but there is not much plot in 90 minutes of Suspiria. And that was fine, because it worked as yeah. a pure impact. Somehow has turned into this 170-minute monstrosity of tangled plot threads that barely relate to With each other. 170 minutes? It's tiring. I watched this last night. And oh, I just 160 had, minutes, I think? And, and, it's 160 minutes. And, 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 and no, no, it's 100 and, 140. Hang no, on. it's longer than that. Okay, maybe, oh, sorry, maybe. No, sorry, it's a hundred. Yeah, it's, it actually is longer than that. Excuse maybe me. It's a, it felt it, longer. It did feel very long. It goes on. But, a film this long cannot sustain suspense, simply. But, okay, but okay, sorry. in extending this, they say, you know, okay, writer's meeting room. How are we going to <laughs> extend Suspiria into a into a long movie for some reason because Luca Guadagnino wants to make an epic. Okay, it's set in, oh, what's this, Germany in the 70s? We can run with that. So for some reason, there's this constant references to the political backdrop in Germany, which is so goddamn heavy-handed. Like, there's no reason that one of the, the characters in this has to, you know, be... Involved in Bader Meinhof bombings, <laughs> you know. There's, there's no reason why the, um, you know, the Holocaust needs to be tied into another character's backstory, to in the massively extensive way that it is. Um, all of these, the al- whole subplot was largely extraneous to the film. All but- of these allusions to German history, uh at best tangentially related to the main goings-on in the plot. And so by forcing them so strongly onto this film, it just it feels complicated, um, plotting, and, and heavy-handed. I think may, just simp- cutting all of that away and simply making a hyper-complex, intriguing uh, story about political battles between witches set in the backdrop of 1970s Berlin 
is enough for an intelligent audience to start making their own connections to the politics of the time instead of trying to shove it down the audience's throat. It's a bad script. It's a lousy script. And the entire subplot... One of my worst things about any film is when the main character changes mid-shift. If you follow... It's hard to track, but the older man who is extraneous to almost all the action somehow becomes the main character in this film. He has no reason to be front and center. He's not nearly as interesting as anything else going on. Sure, it's a great gimmick to have Tilda Swinton play both characters, but when they're required to be in the same room, it's jarring because you know they can't be in the same shot together, and it's distracting. Well, I think there's a reason why he gradually becomes the main character, and I think it's tied to what ultimately sinks this film, which is all of the action of what's going on with Susie Banyan, Dakota Johnson's character, is withheld from the audience. There's some sort of mysterious plot going on with her, and it's completely a mystery until the, the climax. And when a character's entire motivations and even what they're doing at any point is uh, unclear, it's hard to evoke, you know, to create an emotional connection. So therefore, they've gone. <laughs> their focus switches to a subplot that is completely irrelevant to all, the entire witch narrative, which is really complex and easily enough to sustain a full f- feature film. Um, it, it switches to the more easy human interest narrative going on there. But it, his, you know, Lutz Eberdorf, whatever Joseph dude, old man Tilda Swinton, never. Um, really, he gets dragged into the proceedings, but his story never intersects in a satisfying way. No, with he's almost a spectator. It's yeah, he's a, he's a spectator. But on the um, plot and what is happening in the background, the simple fact is the original film uh, dealt like this one dealt with a lesser known philosophical and very theological element of what Suspiria is. It was very passingly dealt with in the original film, but that was fine because it wasn't the main point. And because it's not a film that's about plot. No. But this is about plot in a huge way. This is about plot. And this is one that relies on an investment and understanding of this mythos. The fact is there are films, and they say in this, the little we actually learn, and we should have learned a lot more, is that these ideas predate Christian theology. Let's look at some films that are trying to be equivalent. The Wicker Man films, The Omen, where um, they're dealing with mythology which is much more recognizable and even modern but they deal with it they explain it even the omen when it's all about six six number of the beast book of revelations they deal they go into it in much more detail this I mean, doesn't go I'm into okay. nearly as much detail except we needed that which makes the entire third yeah. act um just unfathomable i would have been okay with a film that leaves the witchy stuff mysterious and i guess metaphorical Provided that you know you need something to we need grounding. Into. We need we did not get grounding. In yeah, this film. just just the th- grounding of the original. You know, Susie doesn't isn't as involved in the actual um, plot in the original Suspiria, and the grounding there is simply a woman is trying to figure out what's happening in this in this strange haunted house with hidden trapdoors everywhere. In this one, the grounding is I'm not sure she knows what's going on and we don't, and so. We watch this protracted build-up. It's long. It's really long. As Glenn said before we started recording, they could easily cut an hour, but it's not suspenseful. I was really hooked when this started because um, oh, the, the production... the train station where she drops the money yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, a snap, okay. But then the suspense dropped after that. Luca Guadagnino is a hell of a director. I think at times he actually pushes it too far. There's only so many times that you can watch... Um, showy directorial tricks of you know spinning cameras timed to weird music cues and strange sound design before it becomes a little bit overbearing 
Um, but he he has great talent, as we've seen through all of his career up to date. And here he's really showing off. And that that was working for me so much at first. I thought here's an interesting world, realistically um, recreated 1970s Germany, which is a, a setting you don't usually get to see in cinema, um, with beautiful beautiful production design and the sense that something big and mysterious is going on. I was hooked, but it just got, takes so long in getting to the point that I stopped caring. And, and, and there's beautiful cinematography, which has to be acknowledged. Look, I have to. I, I don't hate this movie. Um, the cinematography is beautiful. The sets are incredible. I think there was a, definitely a really interesting film in there. The story is interesting. It's just that it's withheld from us for the whole time. Um, and to focus on some political nonsense that is barely no, I, I needed to get into it earlier. And the fact is, I think this is a if, film by someone who loves the original, but is trying to outdo it. And that is a problem. It, it should, feels detached. It feels cold. Strange. Do you find that? Like, when, it, when it shouldn't be. It, it shouldn't, shouldn't be, be with what's going on. Yeah. It should be empathy with all these characters. Especially and, the, the climax seems to be um, working on this idea of that empathy is important and we need to move back to a place of empathy when we're at war with each other. I think that's what the film is meant to be about. But it doesn't work when you approach it in such a way that withholds the characters from us and and stops the film's ability to build empathy. We can barely, even with Mia Goth, who's in a great deal of film, but we don't man, get to empathize with there's her. There's some striking detail. images in this, though. I, I admire that such it's a... Beautiful w- crane shots yeah, and withheld and, ba- and shots beautiful colors wide angle. And interesting and sometimes ghastly horror imagery. Um, I admire that such a weird directorial vision made it to the cinemas. I just wish it were, were better. So that was Suspiria, which is in cinemas now. We'll have a few more thoughts on the podcast coming up as we will be talking about Jeff the Japanese Film Festival, which is screening until November 25th at Event Cinemas. With We'll be talking about One Cut of the Dead, Killing... And Night is Shot, Walk on Girl. Roma, which you should absolutely catch and is, unlike Spirit, definitely not too long. We'll be screening at the Cinema the right Film length. Festival on Saturday and Sunday at Verona and Norton Street, respectively. We'll be on Netflix on December 14th. It is long, but not too long. Get it right, Luca. Uh, oh my God, it was just it was just so much. Too much. It was, it was too much. And too much is is what we want to talk about on the podcast, which you should subscribe to. Yes, not uh, to say we won't talk about too much. We'll talk about how Suspiria is too much because we always talk just enough. Thank you very much. Yes, and that, so do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify. This has been Glenn Fung, Chris Evans, and Rotney Rue. Stay tuned for the podcast. Enjoy movies. Good night. Which. Welcome back to the Film Fight Club podcast. That is the incredible Tom York with the Suspiria soundtrack. Man, Tom York and Jody Greenwood may be competing for best original score. That's I, right. I think Phantom Thread is my favorite score I've heard this year from Jody Greenwood. But oh no, um, you were never really here. Absolutely. Oh, that was re- that was incredible as well. They were both they were both amazing. Um, but yeah, Tom Phantom, York. Phantom Thread was this year, was it? Yeah, it, 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 in it was, Australia, it's an, a, a you know okay. all our was, Oscar movies was, always come in like February. It, yeah. It was February, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. that, that feels like a while ago now. Yeah, it, it does feel like two years ago almost. Mm. 
So we're going to be talking more about JFF at the moment, but first we want to touch on a couple of things, things about Suspiria. Yeah, well, on, we, on the subject of Tom York's music, man, right? It was so good. Yeah, like really, it was. I think it was my favorite, with the production design, it was my favorite thing about the film. Yeah, the, the sets, the cinematography is really nice as well. Um, some of the golden light seeping onto Tilda Swinton's face in in these big close ups. She's really good. We have to give her Tilda. Credit. Yeah, man. In the first, the first time we really see Tilda Swinton showing off, and she's strolling around the place, arching her back you know, emitting huge puffs of smoke. She's just so goddamn cool. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. She's her, the, the She's gif, always great. The gif of her spinning around is actually a really like, oh, oh, boom. She can skate. She doesn't need ju- music cues. She doesn't need shocks. She doesn't need things coming out of the walls. She can just skate because she's Tilda Swinton. But I have to ask, why did <laughs> Luca Guadagnino cast her as the old man? It was... It's, it's like, uh, why? What, 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 was, what was is good. gained by that? Yeah, she was good, but... But why? It's such an expensive... It's like, just because we can? It's such an expensive thing to do. Like, old man actors got to work. It's a good it's a good challenge for any actor or actress. Yeah, I I don't know. I just kind of feel like... It felt gimmicky, I think. Well, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I, like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give her credit, because by pure virtue of the fact that she was good and she fulfilled the role, I was happy with her being cast. I guess I should give it that credit, too, because, yes, she was good and she did fill the role. So, you know, artistic freedom in that, but... And all and that, but it's it's like um okay, it's much better than. But remember, remember Guy Pierce playing the old dude in Prometheus. Oh, that was that was the whole movie or, was bad. Or another run to the side, just run to right. the side. Well, we were spared another um Ridley Scott old man gimmick with Kevin Spacey in All the Money in the World. See, that was a good. So I just got back to Prometheus. That was a good twist. I've got to say the fact that he was on the ship. We but, still might one day see that version. But don't, I think, don't discount it. Look, Tilda Swinton was good, but I think there's a gravitas to seeing an actual real person that, an actual real old person that I think you're missing in the Tilda Swinton performance. I think it's really good, but imagine if how different this would feel if, for example, Christopher Plummer was playing this role in Suspiria. Hello, Ian McKellen. Yeah, Ian McKellen. Like, there's something. There's there's someone I think, who can connote age. And being weathered, that's which right. She could not do as well. I, yeah, I, she's trying to, but the, but it it's always going to be you know imitation. And there's, I think there's a power in a close up of a real old man expressing a lot of longing and regret, which is what this character is all about. Think of the plumber in Beginners, exactly. A really underrated film, exactly. Um, so a couple more things with Suspiria on the, the violence in this film, which is very distinct from the original film. The original film was so hyper-stylized, and it worked because there were these outlandish, ridiculous things happening, and it was and as affecting. And this, the violence, particularly one sequence in a dance studio in the first act, is incredibly brutal. Oh, it doesn't actually man. mesh with the hyper-realist stuff that is happening elsewhere. Yeah. It's just, we've just decided, oh, we're going to have these incredibly graphic sequences with these um, absurd other goings-on. Yeah, it's, it's quite strange. You mean the absurd other goings-on being the witch plot? Um, that and uh, the otherwise, yeah, but essentially, yes. I mean, the original was so saturated with the color, the the, the, the depiction of violence in that film worked. Here, it's much more mooted, and you feel it much more, which is, I don't think, what the Guadagnino was actually going I mean, for, but this that's the effect. It's still extremely stylized, um, but it's a different kind of stylization. Yeah. The, yeah, as we were saying, the colors are very muted, and this one's really like camera flying around a million different strange angles trying to create a a, a weird atmosphere and um 
really intricate production design, creating this brownie, weathered-looking environment. It definitely feels like something scary is about to happen <laughs> whenever you're down those holes. Speaking of something scary about to happen, for the next few minutes, should we have our spoiler discussion of the ending of Suspiria? Yeah, let's go there. And let's also talk about the the violence in the uh, the early scene you were talking about. Okay, so for the next, let's say three to four, five minutes. Mm. We're going to be doing Suspiria, spoilers, spoiler alert, and then we'll be getting into all things JFF. Okay, so the ending, wow, that was nuts. Uh, That was just... Completely ridiculous. Out of nowhere. It was just a different film entirely. What essentially happens is uh, the Dakota Johnson character, who actually is good in this film, we have to give her credit, um, has an enormous character arc in the space of a few minutes and becomes... uh, That's the the thing. This huge character arc has been going on that has been outside of our understanding that she's apparently you know is and we don't find out until very close to the end of the film that she's knowingly been part of this witch plot and uh, i mean i'm still not even completely sure it's it's all very obscure but we know that she's telekinetically communicating with tilda swinton and seems to be aware of her place to some degree yeah and speaking of which, and this is implied to go all the way back to her life in Amish country, which, and I don't know about you, but all these flashbacks to her living in rural Pennsylvania, I didn't find those scariest, but maybe it's because I've spent time there, I have family there, but it's not really, it wasn't spooky at all. It was just I liked, regular and I liked um, the frame turning red in those shots. Okay, that was, nice. that was straight out of has... the first film. That was straight out of the original. Was it? There were moments where... Oh, the, the, yeah. the really searing colors, yeah. But... Luca Guadagnino has some interesting lo-fi effects going on here, like tilting, you know, tinting the frame red or purple to connote something scary is going to happen, or shooting with like the the really slow shutter speed, people blurring between the shots to connote magic is in the air. I did appreciate that, but then the ending, just the giant cult sequence of crazy dancing and. It felt closer to, you know what it felt like? It felt not too dissimilar from the end of Blade, and that's not what they should have been going for. It's not scary. It's not scary. Man, but you just mentioning the flashbacks to the Amish country just reminds me of how clunky this film is. There's so much in this film that doesn't tie together very well, so it just feels like it's jutting out in all different directions, much like Olga in her her dance torture sequence. My God, that was... And the same with the Mia Goth sequence later in the film. It was just so graphically vile. didn't leave it up to suggestion, which I think worked in the original. I mean, the original still is fairly, by the standards of when it came out, it was very sensationally graphically violent. violent. Right. Yeah, it it was, um, it's over the top. This, yeah, there's a sequence where Olga, a dancer who accuses the witches of being being witches. witches. Yeah. Yeah. Look, if there's... which thoughts, yeah, careful, maybe. Yeah. Um, she, yeah, as Dakota Johnson dances, she is in another room magically linked to Dakota Johnson's dance movements. So her body gets ripped in several directions. There's lots of bones breaking. And she's like spitting and urinating and vomiting and, and writhing, foaming at the mouth. And the sound design is is just nasty. I was I was kind of like wincing from the screen, but it, it had no effect because the sound of the bones shattering is just there. 
Yeah, it would have been, I think, more impactful if um, the, the, the use of the Hall of Mirrors, which they, she was in, oh yeah, was very fantastic. Good. I and think it's, I think it's it could have relied on that aesthetic much more. It's strange though to put such a ferociously violent scene quite front and center in this film, and then not go down kind of more dark and violent directions. There isn't anything else like... Oh, there is one sequence one where Mia Goth's where character bones, discovers bones her, through. The, um, that character. Yeah. Otherwise, no, there's nothing like it. Even the final sequence where Tilda Swinton... Uh, what, what happens to Tilda Swinton's character isn't nearly as violent. And then it becomes it's a, it, well, it's a kind so of, mellow at the end of the film. It's a kind of violence that we're prepared for. Exploding heads and blood spraying everywhere is, is usual, you know, the usual for supernatural horror. Seeing somebody you know, folding, essentially fold, you know, bent over backwards and folded their arms and legs, you know, mm. going ways that they shouldn't is is something new. I mean, props for a, a new terrifying horror sequence. I can't say it's something I've ever seen before. I will I did, say I didn't find it particularly terrifying at all. It's not terrifying, but it's gross. Um, yeah. This... <laughs> it's definitely gross. Oh, but that's... I don't think that's what he was going for. I don't think that was the main reaction he was pursuing. Yeah, this film doesn't seem like it's pursuing the react, you know, the uh, gross response. Yeah, this so, is such a high-minded art film. Yes, I'll give I'll give some more credit here. I can say what I said about that sequence for the film as a whole. I have never seen anything like it. This it's a weird film. Um, it didn't work, but I think there was potential for this to work really well. the The idea of um, a war between witches. You know, which is a witch who is um, controlling people uh, to prolong a regime about senseless violence and somebody trying to create change from within is an interesting concept. But the film is is too busy trying to keep it a secret from us until the ending for us to really get involved in the political intrigue. But I loved the early scene where we see the witches voting and they're all hanging out in a big 70s kitchen and dining room. I thought this is such a... A, a new take on witches, you know, just see, seeing the, them just hanging out in the environment, and what I did and the politics after the head explosion scene was just there was just regular scene of someone cleaning it up because someone has to clean it oh, up. Oh yeah, yeah, it was great. There's a hilarious cut between you know Tilda Swinton. What, what's her, what was her character's name? Uh, Madame Blanc has left the company. Cut to suddenly, <laughs> so just like mopping casually. Of course, someone some gopher has to do this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, um, yeah, it's such a mess, right? They're like, where all of a sudden we go from this sort of subtle, restrained. Okay, it might sound ridiculous to call this movie subtle and restrained because the direction the is always so over be. the top. But it's not so much restrained as it is slow. We go from you know slow and not much is happening to suddenly heads are exploding, the walls are being painted red, and Luca Guadagnino is making the frame flash red. It's it's, it's for, any, yeah. for anyone who saw Calling by Your Name and loved it as we did. This is the exact <laughs> opposite of this film. Yeah, I yeah, I'd rather see Calling by Your Name again. But there, there's some you know, there's some similarities in how he um, not everyone loves Calling by Your Name. Maybe you'd love Suspiria if you watched it. You could be the uh, the odd one out. No, no. But maybe you never know. You never know. Never know if you never never go. 
So that is Superior. This is Cinemas Now. Let's talk JFF. Let's talk One Cut of the Dead, which is we talked about last week with the festival director, Alison Groves, and it's a pretty cool idea. I haven't seen it yet. I'm waiting for this weekend because I want to see it with the crowd. But the idea of a, th- a low-budget film and a 37-minute one-take of a zombie mayhem ensuing to more zombie mayhem later in the film sounds like a pretty sweet flick. Well, the best way to watch this film would be not knowing anything about it except that it opens with a long one-take zombie yeah, scene. Yeah, because that's not the cell of the film, actually. And like the, that and film that, is not even about that. So actually, in a yeah. way, it's interesting. So that if anything, I'll say this is the spoiler discussion of <laughs> One Cut of the Dead. Okay, so we're having a spoiler discussion? Not really. It's just I, I would not have liked knowing the kind of stuff you have to discuss in order to review this properly. Yeah. Right. So do we Because would... this film is satirizing like so many things and it's difficult to talk about well, without spoiling uh, let's, the let's just mood of the get into it. Maybe Glenn can cover his ears and I'll give him a signal. Yeah, I know um, you want to see this film unless you're uh, no, no, yeah, okay, look, 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 are we having a spoiler discussion or okay. it's not it well, I guess we are, yeah. Okay. No, then let, if let, unless if we want to let, talk about the movie, let him you have to. Right, okay, well, I'll, I'll be here. I'll listen. It's all good. But uh, we are having a spoiler discussion of one cut of the dead. Are you sure, man? We have been warned. Let's let's do it. All right. Well, the the opening shot. I put it, it's a it's a really um, fun, well directed with strange, uh, <laughs> interesting moments. One shot zombie zombie thing. It's it's people are making a movie about zombies. When suddenly, and we're watching them making a movie about zombies in one take. When suddenly zombies attack, um, and the director seems to be embracing the mayhem and thrusting his cast into dangerous scenarios. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, just just, that, just uh, that sounds incredible. Just just imagine those directors or those already people who are like, I'm g- willing to go to any length for to get my perfect shot. Right. This is that. But director. The, you know, with no no consideration for anyone's yeah, for safety. safety. Unlike any real directors. Anyway, um, who are they? Where, where can I find the, them? The big reveal. Okay, the movie slows down for me after this one shot. Um, we we go back one month and suddenly. Should, should I step out of the studio now? Do you want to? Should I? Well, yeah. If you if you want to just I, freshly, I, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna step out for just one minute and then sure, I'm going right. back because I'm really yeah really yeah. This is what I was trying to yeah, tell right, you cool, before. Cool. Wait one sec. Um, Glenn will be right back. All right, and uh, we if you want to see this movie and uh, you've got a shot, just you know listen in to a minute from now. Okay, so after the <laughs> after that, it's revealed that this is a film about the making of that one shot, which is such a clever idea because one shots, I think, are by their their nature about the making of themselves. One yeah, yeah one shots draw it. You know. One shots are always billed as like a more immersive experience that puts you there, but they're really not. What they actually do is make you aware of the fact that, oh, movies usually have cuts. That does This doesn't have a cut. Oh, there's a camera still rolling so that you become aware of the camera and you start to think about the procedure involved and the, the choreography and mechanics of making that one shot. So here yeah. they've decided to make a comedy yeah. about... About filmmaking, essentially. Yeah, you witnessing all the weird moments that you saw in that first one shot are explained in the second half of the film as we see recreated those strange moments in the in the one shot. In, in a way, it's a Rashomon film, but about 
filmmaking essentially you know you see the same yeah. thing happen but there are definitely some that I, I thought of the film Bowfinger in the way that we look at the magic of people using low resources improvising and throwing things together in order to make movie magic happen very, very Kino Cabaret kind of feel to it yes it is yes it is but in um, a very good way like you know you can see how when people add their sort of you know resources weight uh, resources end, sorry, and they have to actually come with ingenious ideas to just and it works things, out. Yeah, things happen. Yeah, it, it's it's funny and joyous seeing the complicated sequence we watched at the beginning of the film, but also like genuinely clever because yeah, often the like, teamwork this, involved this is something with uh, is great to behold. What Agnino and Suspiria, which is trying to be clever, but this is just actually this was clever. yeah, there was a lot of genuine and oh man, that movie is just plotting. This is is filled with genuine wit. Um, I think the the worst point of the film is the setup explaining how the film came together after um, the end of the one shot. But then witnessing the one shot created is is just so much fun. I'm going to invite Glenn back into the studio now. We recommend one cut of the dead. Yes, because then once you realize, you realize the actual title and what it means once yep. you see the movie. Yeah, it's great. Well, um, I was absent for all that. I hope there was no slanderous importations <laughs> regarding Glenn. I will say that the title, um, One Shot of the Dead, would be more how you translate it over here. Because in Japan, they understand that one cut means it's in one shot. But in over here, yeah, that, that's what it means. So that was One Cut of the Dead, which I'm very, very excited to see. The next thing we're talking about is, are we doing Killing next? Yeah, Killing's a strange one. <laughs> yeah, where do we begin with this one? Um, I'll be seeing this one too, so I'm quite excited to see it with the studio audience. Okay. So studio you, audience. Why did you come <laughs> back in? Just, just stay out <laughs> there. Glenn. Live with our studio audience. Um, no, Killing, it's directed by Shinya Tsukamoto, um, known for low-budget violence, low violence, and here he continues the trend. This one's jarringly low-budget at first, I thought. Um, you can tell that this was shot so quickly. Like, often the the frame's a little awkward. Like, um, it's like they, they've shot it so quickly they haven't even really had time to steady the camera. And you can see that in order to speed things up, often they're just cropping in on the same shot rather than get two shots. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, oh, oh no. I mean, Super it, low oh. budget. It, it, like it, they just it zoom in. Let's shoot, we, let's shoot in 4K and release it in 2K so we can zoom in at random points. Right. It, it feels lazy, but at the Super same time, the actual... Like the mechanics of how the film works is is really clever. So like, it's a strange, yeah. It's it's it definitely made, different. Made me feel like the technicality of movie making was lacking. Well, I don't, but that's deliberate, I guess. If it's, that's his style, that is his style. Um, so he's not he's not going for that. But what he's going for, like, I will say, experience. I thought the filmmaking was actually quite creative in a way that maybe if this film was made with a bigger budget, it wouldn't be. Um, the action sequences, as is his style, are so you know, frenetic, really, you know, the camera's veering all over the place and it's tilting and there's fast cuts. Um, it, it is this very digital contemporary aesthetic, um, which is applied to, a, you know, realistic period samurai drama. And it's a jarring but fascinating effect for me. Um, I, I think this film probably would not have been as interesting if it had a higher budget and they, you know, instead of getting creative in the way that they had chosen to shoot it, had just gone the usual way. Um, yeah. the, the the violence is really dynamic and it, it really pierces through in the way this is shot. And the action scenes are 
really interesting to watch. And that's something I think which has been a recurring theme in the films I've seen at GFF this year, at least. It's how the lack of resources of having low budget is actually no bar to being creative. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of and, creativity going and on. And actually, yeah. like they, they come, they become better for it. Yeah, like you know, there's some creative ways of doing it, which you, like Chris mentioned, you otherwise wouldn't be able to do if you had more money. Then you probably wouldn't even be thinking like that because your exactly. brain would be working in that kind of direction. Yeah, you crea- just it's creativity is problem solving, you know? It was, it and th- there's some interesting problem solving going on here. I didn't really empathize much with the characters, um, but I still found this an interesting... At least on, on paper, it's a interesting character dynamic um, between it's really about this older samurai and um, younger younger samurai in training and yeah yeah uh, yeah sort of like a junior samurai i don't know enough about samurai yeah that's the thing <laughs> in order to i was thinking zoro essentially right. but, that. <laughs> but yeah he, he um turns out not to be as honorable a person as he builds himself to be and ends up creating a lot of problems for the protagonist um and the t- uh, the town he's from the farmers that he's he's serving um, it's really a film that's interrogating the idea of honorable samurai and suggesting that they really um, lord themselves over people they have not much consideration for and, and are dishonorable in the in uh, you know are free to abuse their power and be dishonorable in the way that they choose to kill. Um, like I said, I didn't fully engage with the drama. Um, I found it a little bit too thin, and it's a short. It's a short film. It, it's only about seventy-eight minutes, and it could have gone a lot longer. Um, and developed the drama more, but still, still interesting. Should we talk about our favorite movie after the three? You know, actually, my favorite was One Cut of the Dead, oh, which might really? surprise you. Whoa, whoa, yeah. okay, I'm yeah, a, it I'm did a, me. I'm a big fan of Masaki Uwasa, but uh, Night is Shot, Walk on Girl is not my favorite. I've seen from from him, but still uh, impressive as always. What did you think, Farad? I look, I I really like his work, and I've been recently introduced to his work thanks to Chris. So you know, one more thing Ding. I have to thank Chris for. Which is seemingly weird now that we're becoming like best Fight f- Club. Fight <laughs> Club. No. I, I seem to be fighting you more often than I'm fighting Chris these days. I don't know why that is because you just drifted, Glenn. You've just I've changed. You're not the same. I've changed. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should watch a spirit then we can fight about it. Ah, uh, well yeah, but maybe I might like it then. It might be a good fight. Uh but yes, it, it it's it's funny in the sense firstly like it's very nostalgic. It's probably from a very personal point of view. I I was a philosophy major. I've I've done all the stupid things that everyone. Did you like the sophists? Yes. In this film, I I, I know these, I know those people. Like you know, yeah. I, 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 okay, Sydney University. You know, Manning Bar, Hermans. Uh, you know, whatever. Yep. That's from my West Wing trivia nights where there was so much mm-hmm. fun. Student politics and these sort of philosophy drama groups and yeah, and I'm a little dramatic indie short This this film this film is is essentially about. Um, a woman called the black-haired girl who's i guess she's on a pub crawl yeah. she's she's going through kyoto and drinking and a boy who has a crush on her is also and he's on a mission kyoto, it's drinking. called appear before her often yeah his mission is <laughs> to appear for her before her so often in different in different times and places <laughs> that she believes that it must be fate bringing them together <laughs> oh, oh that's not freaky at all <laughs> that's not men uh, don't do this but, but, the yeah. thing, but the thing is like the way it's introduced it's so over the top it's so, it's it's so, so hilarious it's, okay it's, and I've seen like philosophy students do this so like also right. <laughs> yeah. sorry yeah they're all college students and there's uh, stories involving the intrigue 
of different political clubs, uh, different clubs at the university. For, for like, yeah, actually, for the, this movie captures something. It does capture something unique it, yeah. and genuine about the university experience, which a lot of movies just do not get. I, I see a lot of directors trying to make movies about young people and fail miserably because they just do not get young people. Hmm. This movie actually does get young people quite well. It's not afraid of being juvenile and stupid, yeah, and yet not judging them for it. I think, um. Compared to some, maybe the best work I've seen from Masaki Yuasa, this one's... Uh, I mean, it's hard to criticize. I was going to say that it's a little bit you know, too silly to really have a huge emotional impact, but silliness is really yeah. the name of the game. It's I just maybe found it a little bit too tilted on the side of loose sketches um, because there is a cohesive theme um, that's meant to be tying it all together, which becomes clear towards the end, but I, I think that could have been stronger. Um, that could have been stronger articulated through the film if the characters and their connections to each other had been more of a focus throughout. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's really amusing. And his art as an animator is getting that is ridiculously true. Uh, developed at this point. There's this sequence near the end of this, which is just, um, which is a, a dream sequence, which is There's so, a yeah, so energy. frenetic and just full of ideas yeah. and strange. Um, strange juxtapositions, yeah, I, large-scale I, action. It just keeps going and going and going. Um, and this actually, guy's imagination is yeah, on another level. And he, and he could actually blend four or five different worlds in, and they can sort of self-combust into each other. Like, like a dream works. Yeah, the yeah. way that he captures the way that dreams work in that way. And, yeah. and the world of this film is um, simultaneously feels like flat and completely unreal, and yet somewhere that you feel you could go and visit. The colors are eye-popping, it, it it's it's an amazingly like visual thing and it, and that's yeah. probably just the, watch just I, watch I, good animation. I I really liked the ending. Um, the black haired girl is is a very thin sort of you know she can do anything and and um, she doesn't have much of a motivation. I want to explore the sites, but I I get, get he's this film is really more like sketch comedy and about the individual moments than it is about yeah. fully fleshed out characters. But I still. But at the same I guess time, maybe would have liked a little bit more making, from her. making a bit deeper point about that, like you know that that he doesn't give her any kind of agency to exist. Yes, they do. They do make that point later on. Um, so it, it is kind of self-aware, and in, in that way, I was I wanted to criticize it, but I'm like they're not super sympathetic characters. What he's doing, yeah, it's really um, it's really going into that kind of um, silly zone where actual empathy with the characters might detract from what he's going for. <laughs> it's just it's just nonsense, full on nonsense where characters can get punched into the distance and you know the laws of physics can yeah. switch out. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a good it's time. It's a fun movie and like it's a, it's definitely fun and it's definitely very creative and uh, much more interesting than any animation that has been happening in the West of late. How does it compare to In This Corner of the World, which we reviewed earlier this year, which is also screening at the festival? Yeah, um, I preferred it to In This Corner of the World actually. Uh, but it's much much less of an emotional kick than that film. But actually, the ending of this film was really nice. Did you yeah, find yeah, that too? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> that, that surprised me when suddenly that, it hit that, me. That's, that's constant throughout all his works. Yeah. There's something about, it doesn't matter if he loses the plot midway through. He's able You'll to get bring there in the things end. together in a way that you did not expect. And that's part of the that's true. charm. Because... You don't even think he's going for a deeper point. And then suddenly it hits you. And, and actually I do like, think that deeper point could have been more tied into the into the film. And some of his better works, like Mind Game, um, you know, 
that when the reveal of this is what it's all about happens at the end, it felt more cohesive. And that's another film which is very loose and sketchy. But um, so I don't think this is the best thing he's ever done. But um, definitely worth checking yeah, out. And still a good head introduction. And above anything that's out there at the moment. Yeah. yeah, he's definitely one of the most interesting animation directors working consistently right now in the world, if not the most interesting. This year, he's already put out a, a great series on Netflix called Devilman Crybaby. Yes, I know, <laughs> uh, which is is worth checking out as well. Much darker, but yeah. the same kind of kinetic and creative madness going on. I mean, who doesn't want to like get to know philosophy dude bros? Honestly, me. <laughs> me alright because I just finished watching Good Place season 3 so well, what about oh. would you be perhaps interested in our other offer which is the uh, Guerrilla Theatre Group who put on <laughs> <laughs> they're running from the stu- from the uh, student group police while putting on impromptu theatre performances which are about <laughs> the actions of the student group police department <laughs> that sounds amazing yeah <laughs> well that is one of the many wonders that you can yeah. experience in Night is Short <laughs> comma Walk on Girl screening now at JFF yeah, this film is actually bonkers like, yeah it's in a really it's, good way yeah so that is JFF it is screening at Event Cinema's George Street from now from the 15th of of November until the 25th of November. So you'll have like a couple of days. One Cut of the Dead is screening on Saturday night and Killing is screening on Saturday night as well. Um, They're a double. So yeah, that's all things JFF. Roma is at Cine Latino. You should definitely check it out. And we'll be back next week talking about... Suspiria doesn't even get mentioned again. And and Suspiria, it will always be playing internally in the back of our minds, just haunting us. Oh God. Why did I I watch it then? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't uh, sign up for this. It's not that bad. It's, it's, it's just it's, not, it's just frustrating. It's one of those original. films I like. Yeah, watch the original. Watch the original and watch but his this, other better films that call you by your name. This for is an interesting experiment. Um, it's an interesting world that it's depicting. I still would recommend you check it out if anything about it sounds interesting to you. It's just easy to complain about it because it's so frustrating. They need an hour. Cut an hour. You cut an hour, yeah. I, I'm usually cut not the politics. Ad- I'm usually not an advocate for cutting you know, a film. Like, let it, let it go. Cut, I should... But- I, I should be clear. Cut the real world politics. Keep the the witch world politics. That was much more interesting. Much more. We interesting. don't you know the film about the Better Meinhof gang. No, no, we don't at all. I mean, why? Why was um, who was it? Um, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz at the beginning. She was barely in this. Why film. the hell was she doing RAF bombings? Well, what 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 was the point of that? We were given no context. We were given no context. I mean, the Better Meinhof gang isn't a particular... Again, this is another thing. We needed some context for who this group was. I mean, it's a relatively ubiquitous thing. Most people aren't familiar with their history. We needed that grounding, again, as we did with the history of... Um, the, the, I mean, they the were comment. respecting we... the audience's intelligence to know about it. But um, I think even knowing the background there, it, it's such a tenuous link and uh, just heavy-handed to push it when the political intrigue going on among the witches is enough. It's so and much more interesting. Anyway, I'm I'm breaking my rule that we would talk, talk just enough and not too much. So, <laughs> so that we'll, was Suspiria. <laughs> that was Suspiria. We, we're back next week with Widows and Anna in the Apocalypse. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not one of the best films of the year. And, oh, one thing you should check out also Friday night, uh, the Irish Film Festival, which is going to its fifth year, are having their first pop-up screening ever, Black 47. The Australian premiere is happening Friday night at the Chevelle Cinema, and then a screening is subsequently happening in Melbourne too. Uh, we'll, I'm looking forward to it, so please do come check it out. It'll be a fun night. So this has been Glenn Falconstein, Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. Have a wonderful night. 
enjoy movies. Love witches. Love, love witch, witches. Love, love sandwiches. Good night. Good night. <laughs>